Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Delivering to Engine 14 or Rescue 14, please respond out to Legacy Church, 7201 Central Avenue Northwest. This is your firebox 5781. You have a three-month-old infant with croup, experiencing difficulty breathing. He's in the nursery with his mother. Engine 14, Rescue 14, 7201 Central Avenue Northwest, Legacy Church, inside the nursery, 6 Delta 1. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the AFR podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Pruitt for being here today. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, actually, I wanted to spend a moment just to thank you for uh, we're up to over 20 between PowerPoints or podcasts. And actually, the other day we had a stroke call and I had to go back through and look at that lamb scale just to like refresh it. But now it's all out there and it's quick and easy to use. So it's been even, you know, able for me to just a quick reference to get back there. So yeah, well, I'm really thankful. It's a fantastic idea that you had to do these podcasts. I'm thankful to Mr. Darling, too, for giving us his time and efforts and helping us get this content out. Awesome. So we're right in the middle of our respiratory series. Today, we're going to be talking about pediatric patients. So imagine you're at the station, you get dispatched out to a six delta, and it's going to be for a kid. Now, what differences, uh, what are you going to be suspecting for, say, a six-month-old child versus a six-year-old child? Um, going to a shortness of breath call, I still try to keep my top five causes of shortness of breath in my mind. So head, heart, lungs, um, blood, and then musculoskeletal, because kids can have a lot of similar problems as adults, but there are differences in ages. So as I'm thinking more about an infant, um, they tend to get more viral type illnesses. They're not as mobile. So I would be higher suspicion for infectious type process. Could also be underlying cardiogenic if there's some inborn genetic problem with their heart or even the anemia or blood problems. I would have some suspicion of that too. Okay. And then are there certain diseases that you're just going to cross off your list? Um, I haven't smoked uh, 20 pack years yet. Not necessarily. If we stick, if we have our six month old and I go through my list of my top fives, um, head intracranial problems, unfortunately in our city, we have a, a high amount of child abuse. So I would, I would always keep that in the back of my mind with especially small children, um, could be causing respiratory difficulty and changes in consciousness. They're still young. And so we don't know about, um, if they have any genetic diseases yet. So I'd still consider cardiac. Definitely respiratory is high on the list with lungs and infection. They could have an anemia or some weird blood disorder, even a leukemia um, sometimes can cause shortness of breath and musculoskeletal as well. If again, that would come back to an inborn error of metabolism most likely, but um, I would keep my list of top five, still my top five. Okay. Um, and let's talk about some of the differences in the anatomy. So what's different about a pediatric airway than an adult airway? So pediatric airways can be challenging, and that's why most pediatric emergencies are respiratory in nature. Um, their airways are much smaller in diameter, and we know there's a physics principle um, but basically flow through any tube is dependent on radius to the fourth. These, these guys, all the suppression guys will know this one from their uh, 
their fire hydraulic calculations. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So flow is dependent on radius. And if you have a tinier radius, any kind of decrease in that radius is going to have a exponential decrease in flow. And that's exactly what's happening with the respiratory effects in these children. Okay. And then, um, let's see, nose breathers. Yeah, so um, just the way that their heads tend to be a little bit larger in proportion to their bodies, they tend to be obligate nose breathers. And so if they get a lot of congestion or snotty noses, um, that makes it very difficult for them to breathe. Their airways are more anterior. Um, they aren't, um, most of, uh, most babies are mostly cartilage when they're little. And then as their um, structures start to firm up or their bones get harder, the airway is the same way. So it's easily collapsible. Um, the 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 cartilage isn't as firm, especially in their airway. So any kind of increased tugging or anything like that will make make the airways collapse even easier than an adult. Okay, and one of the the big problems that seems like it was overstressed in paramedic school, but uh, epiglottitis is that epiglottis is bigger and floppier is that what's going on yeah so the epiglottis in the child is it's a different shape than an adult and it's much larger and it's a little more anterior and it's very floppy and so typically when you're talking about intubation that epiglottis can be kind of a challenging factor to overcome and get out of the way um, to get to the vocal cords to intubate um, it's also an issue for children who aren't immunized, there's an infection that loves to go straight for the epiglottis and make it swollen and immobile, and it basically causes immediate airway obstruction if, if a child gets that um, infection. Uh, all right, let's start there. So we're going to start on upper airway problems. Let's talk about epiglottitis, and how is that child going to present? Okay. Um, the way I remember it, number one, uh, it'll probably be an unimmunized child because thankfully this isn't as much of an emergency as it used to be because more and more children are immunized against, uh, it's usually Haemophilus influenza B. And now immunized children don't get this. Um, so ask if the child is immunized. Then what you're looking for is a child that's in respiratory distress and any kind of upper airway emergency will usually present with strider. So it's a very clear like um, sound that sounds obstructive when the child is inhaling. And you've got a sound clip on the PowerPoint. So everybody reference that for there's going to be a couple sounds that you just you have to hear them for yourself or else you're not going to know what we're talking about. Yeah, there should be a sound on the PowerPoint that you can hear. But basically it, it sounds from across the room like like they can't get air through their throat. You can you can hear it from far away usually. And the other thing I look for in epiglottitis would be a child that's too old to be drooling. So that if you think about that entire upper airway being obstructed, um, say a three or four, even five-year-old that shouldn't have copious secretions coming out of their mouth, should, they should be stopped drooling and teething by now. Um, one of the classic findings is that they will be drooling and not tolerating their secretions, and that would increase my suspicion for epiglottitis. Okay, and a uh, much more common one is gonna be croup. Absolutely. How is that gonna present? Okay, this is another viral illness. Thankfully, it doesn't go straight for the epiglottis, but it does affect the upper airway and can cause strider as well. Um, there is not a vaccine for this currently. Okay, so that's gonna have the, the barking cough. Yeah, it's gonna sound just like a seal yeah. is, what, is what they say. Okay, and then 
So sometimes they can have that barking cough, right? But they're not going to have strider present. That That's kind of like the progression of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to do with that virus just attacking the soft tissues in that upper airway there. And it's a like any disease, it's a spectrum. So early on, you're going to have your, your young child, usually a toddler that has like a viral illness, like a fever, runny nose, cough, congestion. But the cough that's specific to croup is going to sound like that barking seal-like cough. And as that disease progresses, usually around, it's it kind of reaches a peak around day three or four. Um, that's when the children tend to get the sickest and the, the inflammation is at its max. You okay. might hear that strider. So if you just have, say, croup with a, with a barking cough and no strider present, how is that kid going to get treated? So the standard of care for treatment for these kids would be um, steroids, so dexamethasone. When you hear that barking cough, um, that's what they need. Okay, so the pediatric dose is going to be uh, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram for the dex. Now, if it gets to the point that there is strider present, what is our treatment going to be for that? Uh, the treatment for strider is going to be the nebulized epinephrine. And the reason for giving the dex is just to prevent that prevent that inflammation from getting worse and causing the strider because strider is indicating that your upper airway is starting to close off. And so if you're already hearing strider, then that is definitely an airway, impending airway emergency and that child needs epinephrine. And the best way to get it to the tissues that need it would be through the nebulizer. Okay. So again, in our system, we're going to give just nebulized one to 1000 epi and the dose for that is going to be 0.05 milligrams per kilogram. So, um, this is all on the pediatric dosing chart. Uh, wanted to bring up a scenario. So say we have a five-year-old, um, and this five-year-old has, uh, maybe not five, it shouldn't have been the best example, but for this, a five-year-old has croup, uh, with strider present. So if you go to our, um, First of all, you have to know the weight of this child. So do you have a good formula for calculating the weight? Yeah, so um, the weight that we put in the PowerPoint is just gonna be the age of the child times three. So let's say this is a five-year-old, well times that times three would be 15 plus seven, which quick math would be about 22 kilograms um, is the quick formula that I like to use. Okay, and again, this is all if the, if the parent's not there who's probably gonna know exactly how many kilos their kid is if they're taking them to the doctor on a regular basis. But um, Rob Lepre also has a good way to calculate this. So he goes with uh, one, five, and 10 years old, and then that corresponds to 10, 20, and 30 kilos. So if we go with a five-year-old, that would put that child at 20 kilos. And going off of that, we're gonna go to our pediatric dosing chart. That'll put that child in uh, blue which is going to be anywhere from 19 to 23 kilograms. So if we're looking at our nebulized epi, again, the dose is going to be 0.05 milligrams per kilogram. We're going to end up with 1.1 milligrams, again, based on that being in the blue section. And then we're going to want to mix in 1.9 cc's of saline and put that all in a neb and give that for the uh, nebulized epi. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I like I like that formula that Rob has that's pretty easy. Yeah, I thought it was easy. So whatever, yeah. again, there's there's so many ways to do different things, but find something that works for you. If it's easier for you to remember that way, it's again, one, five, 10 years old corresponds to 10, 20, and 30 kilos. Uh, simple, quick math. All right. And then also if we're going off a five-year-old, our dexamethasone dose is going to be 
0.6 milligrams per kilogram. You go to your pediatric dosing chart and you look and you see it's going to be maxed out at the 10 milligrams. So really, um, it's going to be more than that, but you're never going to give more than the 10 milligrams that you would give for an adult dose. Yeah. And don't forget, you can always give the Dex uh, PO, especially in kids, so you don't have to give them a shot. Okay. If they're able to take PO. Right. And if it, if it, any other way besides PO, you're going to want to give that over the the two minutes, right? Because mm -hmm. ca I guess it causes a burning sensation in the groin if you... It can, yeah. Pretty profound reaction, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've only seen it a couple times, but it looks uncomfortable. All right, now we're talking about upper airway issues. Um, you mentioned to me earlier that we should always be suspicious of uh, possible airway obstruction with these patients. Uh, with croup, yes. Yeah. So um, those signs that you look for with upper airway... Um, strider drooling not tolerating secretions kind of holding their head and not wanting to move their neck in that sniffing position those are all indicators of a um, impending upper airway emergency and it can be the same thing we'll talk about anaphylaxis later but same kind of thing with upper airway swelling and inflammation and you were mentioning that the, these kids could also have something stuck in there because they're you know they could be the same um, kind of kids that are putting stuff in their mouth all the time yeah so um so your two-year-old male is your classic culprit. Um, those little toddlers are exploring their world by putting things in their mouth, and frequently um, they can present with respiratory distress or difficulty breathing, but you always, in the back of your mind, I think it's valuable to consider that they might be choking on something. Okay. And ask ask those parents, have they had any recent, like, coughing fits or choking episodes while, they, while you weren't watching? Um, did you hear them choking or coughing and then have that high suspicion for maybe a foreign body in there too? Okay. So if there's a foreign body in there, a partial obstruction, we're just going to treat that with supplemental O2 and, and encourage that kid to cough. Maybe yeah. Cough it out of there. If they're coughing and they're still breathing on their own, um, I would just do supportive care and get them to the hospital as quickly as possible. But in the back of your mind, I would try to anticipate what happens if that foreign body gets dislodged and the situation gets worse. I would kind of in your mind have planned out what your next steps would be. Okay, so let's cover that real quick. Uh, can you run down just a complete obstruction for us? Yeah, so complete airway obstruction. Um, basically what you're gonna do, a kid technically less than 13 months, but really if they're, if they're young enough where you can f easily flip them back and forth, you start with back blows. So five back blows. Uh, important point about that is you want to have the kid's head um, use gravity to your advantage there. So you want to have the head and the airway kind of tilted down. So as, as you're trying to thrust that, that foreign body out of there, you want gravity to help pull it out. So make sure the head is lower than your leg. And um, if that doesn't work, then you can do the belly thrust too. Okay, so five back blows, flip them over, do five abdominal thrusts, and you just keep on doing that? Uh-huh, unless they go, unless you can't get it to move and they go unresponsive, and then you're gonna need to change, um, change the approach. Okay, so once that happens, now uh, this patient's now unresponsive, so then now we gotta go into the CPR 15 to two. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna open up the airway, see if anything changed, see if you can see anything that you can take out of there mm -hmm. and then attempt to bag for the basics out there. Um, if you're unable to bag, then we're going to need a paramedic to get in there with a laryngoscope and take a look and try to pull something out. Pull that out with the McGill's. Absolutely. Um, engine 15 a just had this exact call 
several weeks ago. It was, I, I think, maybe a 15-month-old that was choking on a grape and uh, truly choking was going unresponsive and they were able to do very good back blows to get that grape dislodged just enough into the posterior oropharynx and then able to go in with the McGill's and pull it out. Oh, nice. But they did a fantastic job with that child. They absolutely saved a life. Nice. So did you go by and say, oh, outstanding work, but uh, here's your letter of instruction for doing back blows because over 12 months? <laughs> no. Uh, lots of high fives for everybody and congratulations, but guidelines are guidelines for a reason. Um, 13 months isn't a hard and fast, like don't do back blows if they're 14 months old. Okay. Um, it's more kind of based on the size of the child and nice. the ability to, to do that manipulation that you need to with the head and the back. Okay. Well, that's good to hear about the guidelines because, you know, so many things you, you know, a lot of our perspective is not wanting to get in trouble. We, we always want to do our best out there, but we, we want to know like, Hey, what is like for sure not touchable, you know, never 14 months or what is got a little bit of wiggle room. In yeah. It? I think ultimately like my philosophy is like, do the, do the best you can for the patient. And if you feel like back blows are what's going to help, then I'll support you in that. And obviously in this instance, it was effective. Um, there are some things that are black and white. We'll talk about pediatric intubation a little bit later. I can't, that's a state law. I can't change the age of 12, but, um, yeah. in general, if you're doing the best thing you can for the patient, you're going to have hundred percent right. support. All right. Yeah. Let's get into that. So we're talking about pediatric. If they become unresponsive, you take a look, try to pull something out with the Miguel's, you know, for an adult, if that's not successful, then you can try to intubate and just put that, uh, foreign body into the right bronchi. Um, or you can do a crike on that patient, but mm -hmm. for pediatric, uh, 12 years, as you just mentioned, that's going to be uh, state law. So anybody younger than 12 years old, not able to intubate, not able to crike. Right. Unfortunately, all we have at our disposal would be a supraglottic airway or um, positive pressure with uh, BVM. All right. All right. We're going to move on to anaphylaxis. So we did a whole anaphylaxis uh, podcast already. So we'll just touch on this real quick. Uh, pediatric anaphylaxis, it might have facial swelling, some hives present. Um, true anaphylaxis will end up with hypotension. And as I recall, you told us in the other podcast, you want to have two systems involved uh, before you go ahead and give that epi. Yeah. So um, as you're approaching this child with respiratory distress, we talked about thinking about foreign bodies. We talked about thinking about the infectious processes. And then always in the back of your mind with kids, I would consider anaphylaxis as a cause too. And then as you're talking to that caregiver, ask about other systems being involved. So if it seems to just be primarily airway and maybe you don't see a rash, ask about GI symptoms too, because that could very well be an allergic reaction that just hasn't manifested on the skin, but is causing respiratory distress. Okay. And that strider will be similar to a croup strider. It absolutely could be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And some of the other treatments we can do. So we got duoneb for the lower airway and we got Benadryl for the antihistamine. So Benadryl dose for kids is going to be 0.5 to one milligrams per kilogram. That's going to max out at 50. And then for uh, dexamethasone, again, the steroid is going to be 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. And like that example we gave with the five-year-old, that's going to max out at the 10 milligrams. 
Um, you also mentioned earlier that uh, fluid bolus, if they do have hypotension, that, that would help out. Yeah, this would be a place where I would consider if they're um, looking like they're in some sort of distributive shock, I would absolutely consider a fluid bolus here just to support that circulation until you get your treatments on board. We had talked about epinephrine earlier, um, and I know it had been a topic of conversation with adults. Um, and kids, I, in general, have a lower threshold to give epinephrine because their hearts are usually underlying healthy and you're wanting to treat their, the respiratory effects are going to be very beneficial and there's going to be less untoward cardiac effects. And so especially if you, if you have the right story for an allergic reaction here, we can give the Benadryl and we can give the Dex and we can start the fluids, but really what that patient needs is epinephrine. Okay. Um, so I have a lower threshold. I'm less conservative with epinephrine in kids just because I'm not as worried about some kind of underlying cardiac disease. And for the basics out there, they can give a EpiPen. EpiPen, it, yeah. You know, if it's provided by the, the family. Yeah. And just go ahead and give that into the thigh. All right, so we've been talking about upper airway so far. We just covered all kinds of possibilities for upper airway. Now, a kid that's got croup, that's going to be that viral infection. That can also affect uh, the lower airway a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the viruses, they don't always read the textbook like a lot of diseases, so it can um, invade wherever it wants. It might manifest upper airway with the strider, but it could also cause um, some wheezing and smaller airway disease as well. Okay. And also the viral infection, think fever. So check the temperature. If there is a fever present, we've got Tylenol and Motrin. Tylenol dose, we're going to have 15 milligrams per kilogram, Motrin, 10 mg per kg. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned the wheezing. So if you do have that, that viral infection is going down to the lower airway and you have the wheezing present, um, that's called reactive airway in our, in our guidelines. Um, how do you break down the difference between reactive airway or asthma or does it matter? Um, honestly, I don't know. It's kind of a technicality. Usually you'll hear people saying kids less than two, you can't technically diagnose asthma. So if you hear wheezing and they're having respiratory distress, it is termed um, reactive airway disease, but you can treat the wheezing with albuterol just like you normally would. Typically after the age of two, that's when the testing kind of starts for asthma and it'll be labeled as such and the family will give you that history. Okay, and we talked about the upper airway being smaller in kids, but also those lower airways are smaller. So um, if you just think about trying to drink a milkshake through a normal size straw, that's about four millimeters. And then if you get a big old uh, milkshake straw, there's a lot more lot more flow going through there so mm -hmm. yeah it's an excellent an excellent analogy especially this time of year yeah <laughs> hot out all right uh, and so you said we're going to treat that reactive airway we've got albuterol and ipratropium that's going to make up our duoneb so remember albuterol if they're under two years old that's just going to be starting at 2.5 milligrams and you can repeat that um, now what's the difference between the two drugs ipratropium and albuterol um, it kind of, they both act on airways, but through different pathways. Um, if you remember back to your um, neurology lectures, there's, there's a parasympathetic nervous system and a sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic is your fight or flight. So that's um, what we're kind of geared to do when we're experiencing some stress response. So you're geared to run, right? So your airways are going to dilate in preparation for this fight or flight. You're going to have more glucose. Your body is ready to go. And so by giving albuterol, it acts on those sympathetic receptors to heighten them and 
assist with that bronchodilation and preparation for the fight or flight. In opposition to that would be the hypertropram, which acts on the parasympathetic nervous system. It's what we call an anticholinergic medication. And it basically what hypertropram will do will dampen the rest and digest response. So the two medications are acting on the two different pathways. One is going to heighten the sympathetic and the other will dampen the parasympathetic, all with the goal in mind of dilating the airways and helping with blood flow and oxygen delivery to the lungs and the tissues. Yeah, all three of my kids had asthma and when they were real little, we would give, you know, albuterol at home at a, on a home nab just over and over. And it wasn't until we took them into the urgent care that they got the hypertropium or the duoneb. And for whatever reason, that seemed to help them out more than just our, our home albuterol. Yeah, it's kind of a synergistic effect and a two-pronged approach um, that seems to be pretty effective. Okay, and again, we've got some... Uh, you know, as the patient gets worse, we got other medicines. So we got mag, we got, um, epi, as we talked about, one of the things I wanted to bring up was, uh, the CPAP, you know, we don't really have different size masks for that. So say a similar patient that was an adult, we were planning on doing CPAP, but what do we do if a kid? So if you have a child that you think needs positive pressure, we talked about that retention and the closing of those airways. Um, one tool that we have would be a bag valve mask that is able to provide that positive pressure that we can't if we don't have the CPAP mask. Another thing, sometimes these airways, like we talked about them being floppy and not as much um, like good hard connective tissue in there, sometimes just high flow oxygen through a nasal cannula uh, will give just enough pressure through that nose to open it up as well. But if they're in extremis, a uh, bag should BVM will provide enough of that positive pressure to keep them open. Okay. And then our, our dose for mag for these kids is going to be 25 milligrams per kilogram. Again, you got calculate that out and then that's got to be administered over 10 minutes. Sounds good. Yeah. And epi too, if we're talking about an asthmatic kid that's in um, status asthmaticus, again, have that low threshold. If that kid is moving no air and is hypoxic and you're worried about impending respiratory arrest, um, epi is not going to explode that young heart and it might actually help. Okay. All right. So we're going to do a whole new scenario. Now we just got dispatched out. This is a, again, it's a six Delta. We got called out for a one-year-old and we show up and this kid looks completely normal. And the mom's like, yeah, he's fine now. But you know, just a few, you know, 10 minutes ago, he just started breathing weird, had an altered mental status, turned blue, became limp. But you show up and you're like, well, this baby's fine. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so that is um, something I would term either a parent life-threatening event or the new term for it is brewy, brief, resolved, unexplained event. So it was brief. Mom, you ask mom probably how long it lasted, and her answer would probably range anywhere from 30 seconds yeah, to five minutes. Yeah, she said it was like a minute. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now it kid looks fine, so resolved, and then no idea what happened. Um uh, those kids, so it is exactly that brief, resolved, unexplained event. But in the hospital, we take these pretty seriously because it could be any number of medical problems that caused it. So even if the kid looks fine now, that's still a kid that needs to be evaluated. Okay. So from the field perspective, they might be fine now. There might not be any treatment that we're going to have to administer in the field, but we need to strongly encourage, transport, and explain all the potential dangers of the the mom not 
taking that kid in, right? Absolutely. And you tend to see this a little more commonly in the very young infants. So like one, two, three months old. And they these events tend to be more common in premature babies as well. So um, those are the ones I'd really watch out for. Okay. Something else happen, you know, affecting the airway, maybe uh, being underwater. So we'll move on to drownings. Uh, I remember one time, you know, I was at a pool party and I had a six month old and I was just holding my six month old, like not taking my eyes off. And, uh, the next thing I know, like this lady like jumped in the pool, like in her full clothes. And I like look over to see what's going on. And her like little three-year-old is reaching up like exactly like that PowerPoint picture that you had. So the kid was underwater reaching up, uh, you know, I was like so constant. So, uh, my attention was fully on my kid that I couldn't even see this kid just like a few feet away from me, but luckily the mom jumped in and grabbed the kid out of the water. But, um, yeah, scary call. I remember we had a call over in uh, Tanawan when I was at 16s for a drowning and you know, it's just, it seems so far away. You you hear the dispatch, you know, it's going to be bad. You got to go through the gate. You got to go through like every single speed bump that you hit is just like driving you crazy. You're trying to get the call as fast as possible. Um, and then that one, we showed up and the kid was unconscious. So we just kind of rolled him to clear the airway and then just started with the BVM right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, got an IO and route and stuff like that. Good, but, good. Yeah, I think the uh, drownings are, they can happen definitely they, in the summertime. They do. Unfortunately, um, we see a fair amount of them and they're really difficult calls. Um, but it sounds like you did everything right on that call that you went on in Tanawan. Yeah. I think this kid ended up, they, they told us at least the next day he was like in the hospital reading a book. So, um, he stayed unconscious in route. Um, but yeah, we just, we were aggressive with the bagging and yeah, about all you can do is be aggressive with that airway. Realize that there's probably a lot of water in there, water with chlorine that's going to cause again, more inflammation, but you want to provide as much oxygen as you can and as much suction as you can trying to get that water out of there and oxygen in. All right. You bring up the suction. Actually, you forgot to talk about this early on, but we're uh, bringing up how little babies have tiny little nostrils or mostly nose breather breathers. And in your PowerPoint, you bring up the fact of just suction out that nose, get all those boogers out of there. So, yeah, it kind of comes back to that radius. If you can, if you can, with them being obligate nose breathers and that's not kind of taking up extra, um, extra circumference to to decrease that radius, pulling that out of there really can make a difference in their work of breathing. All right. So the options we have, we got our, uh, French catheters. You can use that, squirt some saline in there, um, suck it out with that. And also we got the little bulb syringes in our, um, in our OB kits. So mm-hmm. those are two options out there yeah. in the field. Now, some of these kids, they are going to, you know, need medicine sometimes. Um, and getting an IV on little kids can be challenging. I'm wondering what is your threshold for uh, when would an IO be appropriate or when would it just be kind of cruel? Um, like we talked about, most pediatric emergencies are respiratory in nature and most respiratory emergencies can be corrected with like supplemental oxygen and good airway management. But if you feel like this kid is critically ill um, and just supplemental oxygen or getting helping with the respiratory distress, they're going to need some additional medications. Um, 
that's when I would go ahead and start the IV. Now, base the IV versus IO kind of on their mental status and how quickly you need to act. If it's going to take you a while to get that IV and you know they absolutely need it and say they're unresponsive and not really responding to pain, that's a kid where I would go ahead and get the IO. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's kind of a real fine line because you don't want to be cruel, but if, you know, if it's bad enough that you feel they have to have that medicine, then, um, sometimes trying to get a IV on that little tiny vein, you're, you might not be successful. So you might have to go through with the IO depending again, it's all a matter of how serious it is. Yeah. All right. Well, we covered a, a pretty large amount of things, but again, this was all focused on, uh, uh, the pediatric, um, actually I've got one more alibi here. We got the pediatric assessment triangle. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I was going to mention we that just real quick about too. to skip that. So can you talk about that real quick and then we'll wrap it up? Um, okay. I think the important part about the triangle is, um, you can start your pediatric assessment from across the room. So if you're looking at their work of breathing or their color or their mental status, before you agitate that kid by touching them and poking and prodding and making them uncomfortable, away from their caregiver, you can do a lot of your assessment of how sick they are from across the room. So look at their eyes. Are they open? Are they looking at you? Are they unresponsive? What does their color look like? And a lot of times with the caregiver, I'll have them lift the child's um, shirt up so I can assess their breathing while they're calm and at rest and comfortable before I start to agitate them. Because once you, once you make them angry, your, your assessment is pretty much over at that point. Okay. Um, so I do as much of the assessment as I can while the patient's calm. And that triangle, so we're going to have appearance. Um, are they tired? What's their muscle tone like? Their work of breathing? Do they have nasal flaring? Do you hear strider? Are there retractions present? And then the circulation, so uh, modeling, cyanosis, or pallor. Mm-hmm. And all those are really good things to look at, and I'll tell you a lot about how emergent or sick this child is. And uh, there should be some good videos on the voiceover on the PowerPoint that show exactly what different levels of labor breathing look like in children. Okay, so really, as you've mentioned, and just across the room, you you could see the uh, nasal flaring and retractions and the, the rapid breathing and know that you're gonna have to act quickly. Yeah, and an important point about that is a kid might have 100% level on their O2 sat, but they might be retracting and breathing really fast. And so important with kids is they're gonna compensate and compensate and compensate until they can't. And so if you see a child that's working extra hard and is retracting and has head bobbing um, and is using their belly to breathe it's go ahead even if their oxygen level is 100 go ahead and give them supplemental oxygen because you're treating the work of breathing and not so much a number all right all right well let's end it on that yeah thanks everybody for listening to another episode of the afr podcast